Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, August the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a little while, we're going to be joined by our education editor, Carl O'Brien, to discuss the huge challenge of reopening the schools and what might happen with the impending Leaving Cert results. But first, uh, a bit of a health warning. We are recording this podcast in mid-morning on the Wednesday, and it is entirely possible that by the time you are listening to this, that the, the saga of European Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan, which has now been going on for pretty much a week since that disastrous dinner in Clifton took place, will have taken yet another twist or turn. But political editor Pat Leahy and our European correspondent Naomi O'Leary join me now to discuss what's going on. Naomi, what's the sense in Brussels today about Phil Hogan's uh, position? I think the sense is that at this point he's really hanging on by his fingertips. I think that the Commission gave him an opportunity to account for himself and allow the whole matter to slide, which I believe would have been their preference. I don't think that they're particularly eager to get rid of um, any commissioner, let alone one who's in a portfolio, which is massively important and, you know, particularly at the current moment. Um, But unfortunately for him, the way in which he has handled the fallout has made the problem worse for himself in that it's no longer just about whether he broke coronavirus regulations or rules in Ireland, but also whether he was uh, full and truthful in his account of what he was doing uh, since then um, in public statements through his press people and also to the commission who are his employers. Um, And so the effect of this drip drip of new uh, revelations that contradict previous information has kept the story live and really worsened his position in a way that I think has, has actually surprised people in Brussels because he had a reputation of being very politically canny um, as being difficult to dislodge. And I think it's it really has sort of come out of the blue for a lot of people that a commissioner who was seen as a very strong figure uh, ha- has gotten into such deep trouble so rapidly. And Pat, the drip, drip, drip continues this morning. We have a story in this morning's Irish Times about the, the first night after Phil Hogan had arrived back in Ireland where he was staying in his apartment at the at the K-Club in Kildare. Even by his own account at that point, he should have been self-isolating and quarantining. And uh, there's a witness who says that he was dining in a public restaurant with uh, with other people. Yeah, story on the front page this morning, that part of the reporting done by Simon Carswell, who's spoken to somebody who witnessed him at first hand at the K-Club restaurant on the night that he returned. So uh, assuming that that is true, that immediately contradicts the account that he gave yesterday, or, or at least renders it incomplete in that respect. We're also reporting this morning that he visited Ross Common around the time that he was in Clifton. And whilst nothing may hang on that in terms of violating the lockdown, it is not present in the account uh, that he furnished to the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen yesterday. So you've got to think that 
all sorts of alarm bells in the Commission President's office will be going off when they read that to see that for the second time they have been furnished with an account of Phil Hogan's activities and movements that there is at least questions uh, about the completeness or veracity uh, of them. I agree with just about everything Naomi has said there in terms of what the mood in Brussels is. In Dublin, according to some contacts I had with people here last night and uh, this morning, it's even more pessimistic uh, about his future with a number of people saying that they don't think he can now survive. And certainly given the... The political momentum that this story has built up, it's very difficult to see it just going away. Now, Naomi, it's a very different thing from a European commissioner to be forced out that from a government minister in a cabinet and any of the, the constituent governments of the EU to be forced out, as in it is much more unusual. You could argue, in fact, and I think I saw you arguing over the last 24 hours that this shows up a, a, you know, a certain lack, lack of accountability at the highest level of the of the EU institutions. But it's it's a it's a pretty seismic event in its own way in terms of the course of European politics, isn't it? It is. It's very, very rare. Um, there's only one commissioner who has been dislodged before who was the Maltese commissioner, uh, John Daly, in 2012. And that was amid accusations that tobacco lobbyists tried to bribe him to alter health legislation. Um, and I think that was viewed as a more serious um, affair than the you know potential breaking of the um, coronavirus restrictions for good or for ill. So I think when this initially broke, people thought that the accusations weren't up to that level. They weren't sufficient, really, to dislodge a commissioner. And the argument for that is that there's 27 member states, there's different national politics that go on in all of these 27 member states. And if national governments have the power to uh, recall commissioners, what you could have is you can have political change, you can have election, you can have a new government in a member state, and suddenly they could turn on their commissioner for one reason or another, and it could just cause chaos for the European Commission, it could totally destabilise it and prevent it from having a stable mandate. And so there's this argument that, you know, the commissioners should be somewhat above the fray of national politics. And then again, you know, there's others who argue that this a, a question, the the European Commission, if it wants to be um, the more engaged uh, institution that it aspires to be in terms of with European citizens, then part of that is this accountability. And part of it is um, that its officials are going to be subject to a kind of scrutiny that they haven't been used to experiencing. Um, so um, it's it, it may be a sign of evolution um, in the EU institutions that they do become more subject to this kind of uh, uh, public scrutiny and, and so on. And this is, is very much part of why it puts the Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in such a difficult position, because really this year... And and it was supposed to be kind of you know the relaunch of the EU if you if if you like after um, Britain left in January then there was a hope that you know now the EU could kind of focus on improving its image and becoming more effective and really proving its worth to citizens and turning around any sort of Eurosceptic doubts that might have been growing here or there and so in that context it's really really important for uh, President von der Leyen uh, that she isn't made out to be the head of an uh, unaccountable uh, institution where people can't be fired. Uh, so for that reason, it, it is coming at a particularly sensitive time. And I do think that she will be aware of the potential damage to the image of the commission that that it would do if he was not dislodged. That It wouldn't be the case throughout the EU. Don't get me wrong. People in Bulgaria are not 
glued to the story in the same way that people in Ireland are. But, you know, it matters. It, it would be huge for uh, for one member state in Ireland, and I think it would be significant in the Brussels bubble as well. And we might come in a moment to what it might mean, um, should there be a change. But Pat, I just want to ask you, the Irish government's position, as you as you mentioned earlier, does seem completely clear now. It is that Phil Hogan um, uh, breached the guidelines, um, that he was incomplete in his accounting of his movements, and that therefore, in the view of the government, he should depart his position. But that falls under the remit of Ursula von der Leyen. Um, that's clear enough. They weren't so clear up until about a day and a half ago. There were sort of mixed signals coming all through the weekend and into the start of this week. There was, yeah, there was the statement from the party leaders uh, and in the names of Tisha Kintonishta on Saturday night, which called for Mr. Hogan to consider his position, which is a universal acronym for uh, for resign in uh, our euphemism, rather for uh, for resign in politics. But the uh, Fine Gael leader Tanishta Leo Varadkar was a little more equivocal, I thought, in an inter radio interview on Sunday. But certainly, the very strong sense that I was getting from people in Dublin last night was that having looked at the uh, having looked at the account furnished by uh, Phil Hogan and aware of the potential discrepancies in it, which we see reported this morning, um, that they believe that Phil Hogan, that his position was untenable. That is a combination of the consequences of having broken the lockdown um, in, 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 in an immediate sense, but also the considering the interests of the government in its efforts to control the rising spike in infections that Notwithstanding the fact that it's obviously Phil Hogan is not a, a member of the government, but that the the credibility of the entire governing class and if you like um, was uh, was endangered and and possibly fatally uh, undermined by the behaviour of Mr Hogan, and that he had to go for the government to regain the confidence of the public. So that was very much the sense I was getting last night. Uh, and this morning, I think Eamon Ryan then made that very clear. Now, in fact, the government is also being very clear that it is a decision for the European Commission. And Eamon Ryan did say this morning that they would accede to whatever decision was made by Ursula von der Leyen. But it is clear what their preference is now. So, Naomi, then the question is, and I suppose that there's a there's signs that the vultures are already circling. I'm seeing reports this morning about who might be mooted as a successor to Phil Hogan should he be uh, should he be forced to um to stand down. It's an incredibly complex job putting together a European Commission. There are factors of politics, of geography, of gender, um, of skill levels, ability, all those kinds of things. Phil Hogan uh, is a second time commissioner, which is reflected in his status and his his role. Um. Would this mean a reshuffle or would it mean a like-for-like like replacement and, and a new Irish Trade Commissioner? I think it's quite widely accepted that it would be pretty unlikely that Ireland would get the trade portfolio again if uh, Hogan uh, d- did in fact lead the job. So what that means is that because trade is viewed as such an important portfolio, you know, it's one in which the EU Commission actually has 
uh, powers and competences and it has the power to set policy around the world. Because it's such a, a big portfolio, then usually they put in second time commissioners like Mr. Hogan uh, into it. So I think what's viewed as most likely is that if he went, they would take an existing commissioner, perhaps a high profile one, uh, maybe um, the economy commissioner, Paolo Gentiloni, or perhaps the internal market commissioner, Thierry Breton, and put one of them into the position. And then they would move people around and another vacancy would arise into which uh, the new Irish uh, commissioner would be put. And it wouldn't really be up to Ireland, Ireland really wouldn't have a say over what that role would be. And as you say, there's already speculation about what kind of names could be put forward. There's a delicate balance in the commission. It reflects the political representation of um, that emerges in the European Parliament elections. And as well as that, obviously, there's you know one commissioner from each country, plus they try to uh, do a gender balance as well. So it is rather difficult. Um, it's, a tr- it's a tricky balance to strike. So they'd be looking for someone who's essentially from the Fine Gael gene pool in order not to disturb that existing careful balance that's been drawn up. Uh, and um, they, there, a few names have been mentioned too. I think I'm not sure that any of the speculation is too concrete at this stage because, look, he's still in the position. We don't know whether he's going to go or not. But essentially the kinds of people they're looking at are known known entities in Brussels, Irish people who are well-known in, in Brussels, who I think they are viewed as people who would be fairly fairly um, familiar with the institutions and able to slot into the position uh, without uh, too much difficulty, without a need for too much um, preparation in order to just kind of keep the show in the road because it's uh, it's a massively busy time for them between the pandemic, the Brexit deadline approaching and also, you know, the issue of trade, which is massively important. There's a trade war going on between the US and China and also the pandemic has really challenged just the functioning of the global trade order. So it's, it's, it's a huge brief. Pat, finally, maybe on this issue, that the people who are being mentioned um, are, I think it's fair to say they're technocrats rather than politicians who have electoral histories behind them. This position has traditionally been seen as a, a plum bit of patronage for whichever government is in power at the time when it uh, when it arises. It's also caused its own political problems down the years, you know, causing by-elections, which had uh, sometimes, um, you know, knock-on effects which weren't predicted. I mean, my guess is that this particular government just wants to put a nail in this thing and move on and do whatever is as undestabilizing, if that's not too many double negatives, as possible? Well, look, uh, no government wants a by-election. This government particularly doesn't want a by-election. At the same time, politicians tend to be very much in favour of continuing uh, the appointment of politicians to senior roles. So I would be surprised if there's a technocratic uh, appointment uh, to this, but I certainly wouldn't wouldn't rule it out. Sort of names that were flying about, uh, David O'Sullivan, Catherine Day, both former uh, heads of the Commission Civil Service and uh, and both uh, both Irish, of course. Um, but I think that there would be a conversation amongst cabinet members. One Fine Gael minister said it to me the other day that they, you know, they believe that if, if Phil Hogan went, it would have to be a Fine Gael appointment. And politicians uh, and, and those of us who, who surround them m- move on with ruthless efficiency to considering the successor uh, of anybody who... Um, uh, who's unfortunate enough to lose their uh, to lose their post? So um, I, I, I think that there will be, first, in the first place, there will be a conversation amongst um, 
Fine Gael ministers and between Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin. Some speculation that Leo Varadkar himself uh, could possibly be interested in it. I would be surprised to see him depart domestic politics uh, at, uh, at this stage. But uh, I suppose we're in such a febrile situation with regard to this government and politics, both national and European generally, that um, uh, it would be hard to rule anything out at this stage. Well, then a very, very last question to you, Naomi, because the intriguing idea that Leo Varadkar might be the might be the nominee, would that, I mean, he's obviously a very heavyweight politician at a European level. Might that affect what kind of portfolio he might be given? Arguably, although um, I wonder if a figure like Leo Varadkar had the requisite kind of experience that they're looking for while he's, you know, a, a senior political figure, does he have the kind of um, trade knowledge that would be needed for you know the trade portfolio. Um, really, I think with with something that's so sensitive, where you have to manage, you have to balance you know the the contrary interests of French cheesemakers between like the Jack, Japanese sake industry, and you know you have to. It's a really really details focused brief. Um, so I I think that they would really be keen to get someone with the relevant experience. Um, then again, if it's a if it's not the trade role, if it's something else. Uh, something, you know, perhaps then he, you know, a, a figure like Ragger could be um, per, perhaps um, considered. But th- then again, you know, uh, as Pat said, I don't think that the Tonish the, the is that keen to demar- domestic politics, but, you know, maybe it could be another member of the cabinet. I've also heard the names of um, senior MEPs um, mentioned as well. And what about this idea that Ireland is going to lose out, that particularly in this in the run into the uh, very fraught um, Brexit negotiations in the in the next couple of months, that not having Phil Hogan, even if he's not directly involved in those negotiations, not having Phil Hogan at this very senior trade level, which is obviously a, a huge component of, of, of those negotiations, means that Ireland is not going to be as well represented or have the same kind of in it would have had otherwise. I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone who didn't think this was a loss. Um, I think it's widely viewed as deeply unfortunate, but, you know, events are what they are. And I think that at this point, even though every, you know, Phil Hogan has a lot of people who would like to see him continue in the job, even his allies are just exasperated at how he handled the whole thing and how he wasn't able to ride it out. And, you know, I think it's just out of his hands at this stage. All right, we'll leave it there. We'll let you go, Naomi, because I know you have a lot on your plate today in Brussels. Thanks very much for joining us. Stick with us. Uh, we're going to be joined after this by Carla Brown. Now, this week and next, the country's primary and secondary schools are opening for the first time since mid-March. It's a massive undertaking, arguably the largest educational project since the foundation of the state. And as if that weren't enough, tens of thousands of Leaving Cert students will receive their exam results in two weeks' time through a process of predicted grades, which has never been used before and following huge controversy and chaos in the UK when a somewhat similar process was attempted there. Uh, Pat Leahy's still with us. Uh, We're joined by our education editor, Carlo Brown. Carla, quiet time for you. Yeah. It's funny, you know, um, the education calendar, it's normally very, very cyclical, you know, and you can uh, uh, plot your, your year out uh, with the certainty that everything will happen like clockwork, except this year, of course, everything is up in flux. And um, funny thing is, you know, education, it's, it's especially the Department of Education, it's normally kind of quite a conservative department. Change happens slowly. 
But we've had this huge leap in the dark with calculated grades. Uh, and we've also had this, as you said, massive undertaking of getting a million children back into schools in the middle of a, a public health emergency. So um, very, very different times, huge challenges for the department. And it's exposed you know, a lot of the weaknesses that were there within the education system that weren't always visible, but but it certainly put those very much out in the open and, and causing major, major challenges. This isn't only a huge Irish story, obviously. It's a huge global story and right across the, the Northern Hemisphere anyway. Um, you know, schools are going back across Europe in the United States. There's political controversies left and right about the pros and cons of that. I mean, we're more f- most familiar, and I mentioned it at the, uh, at the top of this item, what's been happening in the UK. But our educational system is very different from the UK. It's much more, I suppose, disaggregated really, isn't it? Yeah, like uh, I think you know, people sometimes think that our education system, it, it's its very much like others where it's command and control and the teachers are employed by the you know, Department of Education. Um, it's not quite the case here. You know, you have, um, um, I suppose, education, it's, it's quite decentralized in a lot of ways. So you have uh, 4,000 schools, which all have their own boards of management. And in many respects, they are independent fiefdoms they in turn employ the teachers themselves, not the department. They're paid by the department, but employed by by the boards of management and schools. So uh, you also have teacher unions, which are very, very powerful here and and effectively in in many respects call a lot of the shots when it comes to to change. And uh, and then on top of that, of course, we've largely underfunded education system too, which has been propped up uh, to a large extent by voluntary contributions by parents. So all of those kind of issues uh, make it uh, more difficult in a lot of ways for the Irish system uh, to kind of reopen and get back on its feet versus other uh, countries. So, so you're right, it's, it's not as, um, it's, it's more challenging, I think, in a lot of ways than other jurisdictions such as the UK and a lot of other uh, European uh, countries as well, where it is much more command and control and teachers are directly employed by the state. Will that to some extent give the department in particular a level of plausible deniability when things go wrong, as some things are, are, are bound to go wrong, aren't they? Uh, yeah, it, things will go wrong. You know, we're, we're seeing it already, you know, that um, obviously we had a very ambitious school reopening fund, 375 million and, um, you know, lots of money for additional substitute cover, PPE, hand sanitizer, structural alterations. So that, you know, went down quite well and it was very ambitious. Uh, the problem is, of course, in, in practice, is drawing all of that down. And, and you are seeing issues already where schools are complaining that, you know, they're not getting access to uh, some of the PPE and they're not getting access to builders to do structural alterations. And you could have, you know, in some schools a delayed reopening. But um, so there's definitely issues emerging there. But I don't think the department really will get off scot-free or the minister but by, by, by any measure, you know, this is very much, you know, the funding is coming from the department. Uh, the guidance is coming from the department and, and that that informs everything ultimately on the ground. So, so no, I, I don't think that distance, if you like, gives them much cover, political cover at all. Pat, I should say I'm actually on a board of management of the school myself. And my experience over the last couple of weeks is that the, the situation is incredibly fluid. And actually, the guidelines from the department have changed on a number of occasions, even over that period of time and continue to do so. And that has an impact on this, on the plans that the school makes. And as Carl says, there are issues then about work that needs to be done and can it be done on time. And, you know, the, the, the dates on which the school is opening are changing. 
people I think are prepared to take all that on board because of the the value of the prize, the prize being getting children back to school, which really I think everybody agrees is absolutely vital. Yeah, I think people will probably make a judgment on this in the round. If the schools go back and something resembling the normal school week is established after uh, after a couple of weeks, then I think people will give not just the schools, but, you know, the department, the government, the new minister, some degree of credit for it. I don't think people will expect everything to be perfect, but they will expect the schools to be more or less back with, as I say, a recognisable school week. If that doesn't happen, if the aggregate of individual problems that will no doubt pop up in uh, in schools all over the country is sufficiently great to derail the whole project, then uh, I, I think it will be difficult to imagine a more serious political problem for the government. So I think if it if this goes off okay, I think it will enable the government to maybe put the Hogan affair behind it to uh, to some degree, because this is something that affects people in their daily lives and people really care about. People are certainly annoyed at the, uh, uh, and a lot more than annoyed, f- furious at the uh, at the golf dinner. But this is the sort of thing they expect a government to be able to manage. And if it doesn't manage it and goes on, to then when the Leaving Cert results come out on the 7th of September to stumble into that. And I think the way, although they are discrete issues, the way the return of the schools next week goes will determine a lot of the context in which the Leaving Cert result is interpreted. Um, uh, You know, so I think if it goes badly next week, I think the chances that it goes worse with the Leaving Cert results the following week uh, increases. And in that case, I think that could be perhaps fatally uh, destabilising for uh, for the government. I, I mean, I think I've, I've said this on the podcast before, but the future of the government, I think, actually depends on how the next few weeks go. And uh, it's it's in that respect, it's it's impossible to overstate the political importance of it. And I want to turn to the Leaving Cert in a minute, but, but Carl, I want to ask you about, um, there's one news report um, yesterday and this morning about, uh, I just found it kind of confusing really, about a school which had had a, a prayer service for, um, for, for first years entering the school for the first time. So there were 120 or 130 individuals congregated in a hall, albeit with social distancing of one metre. Um, that seems to me to be the kind of thing which, the guidelines advise against, isn't it? I mean, what does that say about the, the guidelines or my understanding of them or or that school's understanding of them or what they actually say? Yeah, like there's no doubt that went against the spirit of the guidelines. You know, one of the issues is schools have a fair degree of autonomy, you know, in interpreting the guidelines. So they're not very prescriptive. And so there isn't, believe it or not, anything in the guidelines which says you do not hold an assembly do not hold an event where you have 150 pupils socially distanced. Now, there should be, of course, but there isn't. And you would have thought maybe that most school principals would, you know, on the ground would not hold those types of events. But in this particular school, they did. And there are other schools, certainly, where they're looking at, you know, trying to do orientation days for for students and, and holding them en masse. But 
this is this is the big challenge in reopening schools. It's a big mindset shift. You know, you can't do the things that you used to do anymore. And I think that's going to take a while to percolate through on the ground, you know. So while something mightn't be written down in black and white, certainly if you look at the spirit of, of, of the guidelines, that's not the kind of activity that should be happening. And, and when that happened in that school in, in Carlo yesterday, you know, the department issued a very kind of wishy-washy statement which really didn't answer the question at all but it took um, Norma Foley when she was on primetime last night to kind of very much say you know this isn't what we want you know this isn't what the aim of the these guidelines are about I think you're going to see you know quite a bit of that you know you've, you've principals and teachers just adapting to that new normal and 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 just realizing that you know you can't have the staff meetings you can't have a lot of the extracurricular activities you can't have school assemblies uh, you're just going to have to change the way we do things, and and that that might take just a little a little while to 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 get through on the ground. It seems strange, though, that that has not been realised already, given all we've been through in the last six months. You would have thought so, particularly against the backdrop of the discussion of you know the eighty one uh, Iraqis members and others, you know, in a hotel that you know that should have got through. But um, you know, in that case, you know, the principal was saying, "Listen, we abided by the guidelines. The students were." distanced at one meter um there was nothing in the guidelines that said we, we couldn't do that and she's right absolutely but again it comes down to the the spirit of it and um and i think what one of those issues with, with um the guidelines is that you know every school is kind of different on the ground every school has its unique challenges such as classroom layouts uh, some of pe halls some don't all of that so the guidelines themselves were afraid were um, molded in a way to allow schools to adapt them to their own individual circumstances. They weren't un- unduly prescriptive. And, you know, that can be a positive, but it can also be a negative, as we've seen in this most recent case. And, and I am sure there will be many others in these opening weeks um, where you will have, you know, pictures flying around on social media of of kind of questionable um, assemblies and, and group meetings and, and so on. But I think I think that will get through you would think, uh, over the coming days and weeks. Pat, Norma Foley had a couple of rocky moments over the course of her first two months. Her next two months are likely to be tougher. Um, How do you think she's doing so far as a new TD in in a particularly fraught position? Well, pretty shaky start, I think, and she kept the head down over recent weeks when there was, you know, constant calls for her to come out and be the face of the reopening of schools. But she gave a fairly strong interview last night on uh, on prime time, and uh, I, I I think she has a reasonable shot of pulling this off. I think if it goes wrong, as we discussed earlier, there will be enough political blame for everybody to go around. Um, but I think at present she has a reasonable shot of. Uh, of 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 doing this successfully a lot will depend of course on as carlos laid out the performance of the individual schools and and how i think that both the health authorities but also the central department of education react when as inevitably there will be uh, there are outbreaks in schools, you know, are, uh, uh, you know, are whole schools shut down because of outbreaks? Is it simply the pods or the class or the year or how that is done? There's a fair bit of confusion, as I understand it, among schools as to what's going to happen if there is a, uh, if there are, if is an outbreak of cases reported in their schools. I think they'll simply ask the HSE and the HSE will, uh, 
will will assess the situation and tell them what to do. But that, in a way, is handing over control of how that is managed to an outside agency, which, you know, hasn't always um, uh, displayed uh, NASA levels of competency, um, to, to say the least of it. So, you know, I, I think probably too early to say uh, how um, Norman Foley is, is, is performing. She has a test next week and the week after um, she has a reasonable shot at, at, at passing it, I think. But um, if I were her, I certainly wouldn't be taking anything for granted. So let's talk about the, the leaving search, um, Carl. The, I mean, I mentioned the, 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 the situation in the UK where, first of all, the Scottish government uh, brought in these calculated adjusted grades and they had to roll back completely humiliating climb down and all this was observed by the government at Westminster who then fired fired ahead and did exactly the same thing in England with the the education secretary Gavin Williamson you know being deeply critical of the Scottish humiliating climb down and then being forced to do the same thing himself within within 48 hours it was a complete dumpster fire of a process and people have wondered you know they had this complex equation or algorithm or whatever you may want to call it, which clearly delivered unfair outcomes for some people, um, seemed to entrench or enhance um, socioeconomic inequalities, uh, various other kinds of things. So we're all looking at um, here, do we have an algorithm here? We do, you know, and um, and you're right, you know, the department and the minister will have been watching with kind of um, fascinated horror uh, as to what's unfolded over in the UK. But, you know, the biggest asset they have is time, you know, and they've seen where all the landmines were in Scotland and Wales and England and Northern Ireland. Um, so they have a chance to try and, you know, diffuse some of them um, over the coming weeks. And so when they announced that the results were going to be not in the middle of August, September 7th, th- there was a bit of an outcry over that. But, but you know, that gives them some crucial breathing space um, uh, to try and ensure that, you know, that the grades are released in a way that's acceptable to most pupils. Now, you look at how how similar are, is the Irish system to the UK system, and on the face of it, they are very similar. As you said, you know, you have two sources of, of information that inform grades. You have, you know, the teacher's estimated grade for a student, and then you have this standardisation process. So we, on the face of it, we have a very similar system to the UK there are some small differences which should lead to the grades not being not quite as controversial. So one is that you know, teachers in Ireland were giving percentage marks to students, not grades. So it should be a bit more accurate. Um, secondly, um, the standardisation tool uh, is likely to be, I would say, a light touch standardisation because they've looked at what's happened in the UK and they've seen that's where the controversy was, you know, when students are seeing their results being downgraded significantly. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that um, actually that that standardization um, or the algorithm isn't applied as as heavily as it has been in the UK. You've got to think, though, that some process to address the same problem, which is 
teachers marking up their own students, which is likely, it seems to me, to be uh, just as likely to be a phenomenon here as it was in uh, in the UK. Now, whether Irish teachers will mark up their students by uh, a, a similarly spectacular amount as British uh, teachers appear to have done is uh, is another question. But either way, some sort of process to address the uh, the problem of teachers marking up their students and therefore having vastly better results uh, than might otherwise have been the case, and that was certainly the case last year, uh, will have to be found. But one of the things, Carl, that strikes me is that they were more used to the idea of predictive grades in the UK because for a long time they've had predictive grades which allow universities to make early offers, which are then contingent on the real marks that people get in uh, in, the, in their actual exams, which is different from the system here. So they should have been more familiar with the kind of differential between teachers' marks and, uh, and, uh, and exam marks. But it still went horribly wrong. One of the things which has been suggested is that, you know, in attempting to get this accurate bell curve, which mimicked um, exam results in previous years, what they did was they intentionally reflected inbuilt inequalities in the system in the first place and just imposed them on people this time, which made them more glaringly obvious and perhaps more ethically problematic than they had been in previous years, but they're there all the time. Well, I think what emerged from the UK was that, you know, there wasn't, um, there wasn't public support for a system where individuals' grades were largely dictated by an algorithm. You know, people are happy that when it's a human overseeing a correcting process that that happens. Even though there are algorithms involved there, you know, they're, they're less visible. But here it was very, very visible in that case. And Norma Foley actually made um, a kind of a coded reference last week, which I thought was very significant. And she was saying that, you know, the Irish system will, will have more weight attached to the school-based grade. Now, that hasn't been said before, and what that does indicate is that we will have a much more light touch standardization or, or less emphasis on a bell curve and ensuring the results are the same from year to year. The problem with that is, of course, that that does mean grades are likely to be much, much higher than previous years. And it also disadvantages a very sizable cohort who are applying for places in college this year based on previous years leaving certs. So let's say there's about 70,000 uh, people looking for college places, about 20,000 of those are people applying on the basis of previous leaving certs. So they could certainly be disadvantaged if grade inflation goes through the roof because we're, we're placing much greater emphasis on on uh, school-based grades. And, and also the thing, the issue with, w- will teachers, you know, um, be more generous in estimating their students' grades? We have no research in Ireland about this. The only research is in the UK. And as you said, they have huge experience in doing this but I think it's the, the, the latest research I saw was that in 70% of cases, teachers overestimate their students' grades in the UK. And that's a system where they have a, a lot of experience uh, over, over decades there. Um, so in Ireland, we really don't know, but I'd be very surprised if we're not um, uh, dissimilar. You know, I'd expect us to be um, certainly somewhere in that ballpark. Of course, the reality of the Leaving Cert is that what it is, is in fact, is a, is a masked or glorified um, third level entrance exam. That's that's its its primary function. I'm sure that there's a there's a smaller number of people for whom it has some effect upon the jobs that they hope to start in the succeeding year or two years. But that's that's a very small part of it. So what does that knock on effect of that grade inflation you talk about mean for the universities? Does that does that just wash through or does it mean that there are more people who who get into university this year than did last year? not just university, but all third level. 
Yeah, so the CAO system, it's supply and demand. So it's different to the UK where, you know, you, you get your conditional offer based on what grades you will get. And then you get your, your place in college. Whereas in Ireland, it's really supply and demand. And of course, your grades convert into points. And then the, the points are based on your um, your where you are in the uh, competitive queue, if you like, for places in a particular course. So um, the thing is, in, in the UK, to kind of solve this political issue, they had to create you know, thousands of additional university places uh, because so many students were getting those uh, conditional offers uh, which hadn't been otherwise due to standardisation. But um, in Ireland, it, it's going to be different in that we we literally do not have the capacity to offer these additional places. In fact, the universities are probably doing well enough to offer the same number of places as last year because of the financial crisis that a lot of them are facing into. So um, I think what you might see is that because of international students aren't going to be coming here in the same numbers, you will and you will see some courses, perhaps those high demand courses like medicine, maybe nursing and some engineering courses, that you will see some additional places there, but not huge. We're talking, I'd say, in the hundreds, maybe certainly not the thousands. So that could ease some of the pressure, but we we don't have that option uh, that the UK has had of kind of lifting caps and and really opening the opening the doors and allowing you know thousands and thousands of additional uh, play, university or third level places for for students but um i think they will just hope that by adjusting the standardization by having a light touch approach to it um that that will you know take some of the heat out and what's also interesting is the the, the sequencing and in, in how students will get their results because you get your results on a monday september 7th Four days later, you get your CEO offer. So, you know, it's it's not, you won't have students um, kind of marching in the streets, you know, until they would see their CEO offers. And then it's the following Monday uh, that you only get to see what your school or teacher estimated what the, the for you in your grade. So you'll only then get to see the extent to which you're downgraded. So if you like, the sequencing of that could take a lot of the heat out of the situation ultimately, whereas in the UK, you know, people had full visibility on day one of exactly what had happened to their grade, what their teacher had estimated, what their actual result was, and whether they were going to college. Here it's spread out over the course of a week or so. That's very convenient sequencing, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And uh, and it's it's kind of the system that, we, that we've we've had, um, which is kind of controversial in itself, because people think that, you know, when you get your leaving cert results, you should know automatically, are you going to college or not? But that that's the the system we have, but certainly the idea that you're not seeing your teacher's estimated grade for a week, I think could be crucial in shaping, you know, the public opinion and the student response to these grades. And that could certainly take some of the heat out of this from from the government's point of view. Finally, Pat, just, I mean, as you've said already, this is the crunch issue for the government now over the next six, six to eight weeks in particular. And really, it seems to me, that nobody's really sure how either of these huge issues, back to school and uh, and the leaving cert results, are going to go. It's in, in in one ways, it's a huge political gamble, and it has to be done. But political gambles are not things that politicians like to take normally, are they? No, um, but as you say, it 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 has to be done. It seems to me there's a couple of danger points um, uh, in this. The 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 first is that there could be, as Carl says, without an expansion of university places and if the grades are higher than they have been in previous years, which 
um, it seems to be what we're headed for, then there'd be a spike in uh, a spike in points so that lots of people who would have hoped uh, with particular results to get into particular college courses won't uh, won't get in. That's that's a danger point. And also when the uh, the corrections and uh, the, the full information on the individual grades come out, what really torpedoed the British system was an avalanche of individual stories about people who uh, in many cases came from underperforming state schools, had worked really hard, had outperformed everybody in their school and was going to go to the college of their dreams, do the course of their dreams and so forth. And they achieved that in their estimated results, but then were knocked down by the evil state algorithm, which has deprived them of, of the university place of their dreams. If anything like that happens here, then, um, then I think uh, that you know, the government could be headed for all sorts of trouble. What I suppose it will need to do is to project an image of uh, of being in control, of competence, but also to put forward to people a believable narrative. Nobody expects that everything is going to be perfect, but if the government can present a system that is working more or less pretty well in the circumstances, and that isn't contradicted by a whole heap of, you know, very hard individual stories, then it has a shot of uh, of making this. But given the given the management competence that the government has displayed thus far, it wouldn't exactly fill you over brimming with confidence um, that it's going to be able to pull this off. Finally, what do you think about that, Carl? Because, I mean, Pat's quite right that, that, that the thing that the algorithm was particularly dismal on, or, or perhaps was most noticed because it was so glaringly unfair, was high-performing students in underperforming schools got a particularly raw deal. There's a particular thing, I think, more in Ireland, but maybe correct me if I'm wrong, that there's another cohort who might kick up some trouble, which is um, uh, aggressive parents in uh, in supposedly high-performing schools, often fee-paying schools, who are very, very keen to uh, call on learned friends if they feel that uh, if they feel that their 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 lovely children have been in some way disadvantaged by the state, maybe for the first time in their lives. Um, is there any any sense that you know we might end up with some of this in the courts? Yeah, I think there. Uh, the one certainty is that there's going to be controversy about this. You know, there will be winners and there will be losers. You know, um, what what's will be crucial is you know to what volume that is happening. Uh, and there will be legal challenges, you know. In fact, we've already had one successful legal challenge, which was from a homeschool student who um, argued that they've been unfairly excluded from the calculated grade system. So they've already was- lost one big legal case. The Attorney General advised when they framed this calculated grade system was that there were legal vulnerabilities to it. So I think it's inev- inevitable there will be legal challenges. You're right, you know, the very well-connected um uh, students uh, who don't get their, their chosen places will feel especially hard done by if they sense that it's an algorithm that has uh, uh, tripped them up, not their um, their academic capabilities. So that's going to be an issue. Uh, and as in Scotland, as you said, that the really big issue there was um, disadvantaged students being uh, disproportionately downgraded. And I think that's something you know, uh, which the Irish policymakers would be acutely aware of, you know, and it was the one area of controversy when the calculated grade system was was devised um, initially was the school profiling idea, you know, that um, 
um, students' um, calculated grades might be adjusted based on the school's track record uh, in achieving uh, grades over a period of three or four years. So that will form part of the algorithm. Um, the issue, the, the, what the Irish uh, officials say is that our system is uh, slightly different to the UK system in that it does pick up the type of student who might be in a poorly performing school, but actually is uh, exceeding the performance of the wider class. And they're saying they can pick up on that from you know, their junior cert results and also um, the uh, teacher's individual grading uh, will be recognised as well. However, there were similar arguments made in Scotland and in England and in Wales and in Northern Ireland. So I think the, 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 the key thing is, listen, nobody knows how this is going to go, you know, but as I said, the, the, the biggest asset the Irish system does have is time. And certainly I would say there's, they're working furiously to go through student by student, school by school, um, uh, with a large degree of human intervention uh, to ensure that, you know, what does emerge is going to be as palatable as possible, I don't think that happened in in, in the UK, where it's very much, um, uh, very much done by by algorithm, and it was outsourced. So, so here I think uh, definitely time is the one thing which is on the Department of Education side here. It's kind of fascinating stuff, really. It's going to be a bumpy, maybe a nerve-wracking ride as well. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much to, to Carl and to Pat for joining us. Thanks to Naomi also for joining us earlier. Uh, also to Declan Conlon, our producer, and JJ Vernon on the desk. Before we go, allow me to encourage you one more time, if you have not already done so, to go out to irishtimes.com slash subscribe to sign up for unlimited access to the Irish Times uh, for the remarkable price of one euro for the first month. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.